Today on Not Even D2, we have Coach Ed Silva. Ed has been coaching Division Three for over 20 years. I'm going to keep this intro short because you have to hear Coach Silva's perspective about not only basketball, but life itself. Coach Silva left me speechless on some of his responses on how he handles his program. Thanks for tuning in to another episode, and make sure to go follow the Instagram page at Not Even D2 for sneak peeks into future episodes. Let's get into it. All right, what's up, Coach Silva? How we doing today? Hey, what's up, KJ? Uh, great to be here on the pod. Yes, sir. I appreciate your time. We're extremely excited for you to be on today. But before we get started on your coaching career, I want to talk about your playing career a little bit. You were an all-conference player at Eastern Connecticut State University. What was your game like back in the day? Yeah, so... Um... It seems like that seems like forever ago. Um, and you know how coaches could sometimes embellish. Like each year that goes by, we embellish our game a little bit. You know, the way, we, way I'm talking about it now, I might be, I might refer to myself as pretty close to Michael Jordan or that type <laughs> of player. But, uh, you know, I went to, so I went to a junior college before I went to Eastern Connecticut State. Um, and I, I think my game was kind of, when I was at Eastern, my game was kind of more of like a, a point wing or a point forward it was mm -hmm. interesting i kind of had to play some point guard um a lot of point guard my senior year i think i was second in the conference in assists Tough. pretty close to you know being the first non-guard in the least conference i think to to lead it in assists and i just missed it by like a couple tenths of an assist but um you know i'm six four at that time i'm probably like 230 now i wasn't quite 230 then uh probably a couple hundred but i, I definitely played physical i could play a little inside out rebound the ball um and I, I i was a willing passer you know my coaches used to always say that about me too so um but um you know that was kind of that was kind of my game it's interesting when you become a coach you start seeing the game differently and then you start reflecting about how you thought about the game when you were a player mm -hmm. and i got credit for being somewhat of a smart player when i played but i wish i had just like one 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 hundredth of a percent of the perspective that I have as a coach when I was a player. Uh, and it's one of the things I actually think about when I work with my own players is trying to teach them the game in that way to see it like a coach, because it really does help your game. But, um, you know, I did, I was fortunate enough to make all conference. The Little East Conference is, a, is was a very good conference then, and it's still a very good conference. And, um, you know, so I'm grateful for all of those opportunities. And I would say I, I was a competitive player for sure. Yeah. Do you think that um, your playing career and how you were as a player affects how you're what you're looking for in kids when you're recruiting? That's a great question. I, I'm sure we all have a little bit of bias, right? We all have a little bit of bias on what we're looking for. Um, I would say um, when I first became a coach, I became a head coach at 27, which is kind of young. But um I was definitely looking for more of me, whatever that meant. You know, um, I think I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts, um, played a lot on the playground, played some AAU as well, but it wasn't as prominent like it is today. And um, so I, I would say that I had a little bit of grittiness and, 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 and toughness in, in my game a little bit, a little physicality. And so I definitely looked for players like that because I felt like I could coach them better because I could connect with them. As I as I as I really got into driving, um, being a coach, I realized I, I had a better understanding that you need a lot of different ingredients in building a team, and having every every player be the same type of player can sometimes be a recipe for disaster. Um, and so, what I, I really started changing my frame, uh, uh, my lens, or my perspective, in really trying to identify. Like what were the strengths of our team and what were the weaknesses or the areas of growth and how could we improve our team by finding individuals that possessed whatever those area growth areas of growth that we needed, you know? Yeah. Let's backtrack a little bit to what actually made you want to get into coaching. 
Yeah, man. Like, I'll tell you, I never really thought about coaching, certainly when I was in high school. Um, and then even when I started college. And um, so be, I mentioned I went to junior college. I went to a school that doesn't exist anymore in Manchester, New Hampshire, called Hesser College. And um, it was just a, it was, it was really, it was really a, a, a rebirth of a, of a place for me, man. I love that place. Um, I wasn't a great student in high school, so I really needed like a junior college. I'm proud to say I was a straight A student all through college, all the way, including grad school. But Hesse was just a great place for me. It was like this, it was this, the whole school was inside of a mill complex. Like you literally didn't need to leave the entire school because you had your food, your bookstore, your classes, your dorm, the gym, everything was all encompassed in this mill complex. But after my two years there, um, I had a little bit of um, turmoil, um, um, some difficult things going on in my life. Um, and so I decided to kind of gap year it. And at that time, the school had a great deal of respect for what I did as a student athlete there. Um, and I was an RA my, my second year there. So they made me the, um, it was called uh, uh, an area coordinator, I believe. And, um, and so basically I was a part of Res Life and my coach was like, hey, look, why don't you help out with the team? You know, you're smart, the guys respect you. Why don't you, why don't you be the head coach of our B team, our developmental team? And you could help me out with the top team. And I, I said, you know what, I'm here. I love, I wanna be around the game. I can get into practice with guys so I can stay fresh. So it, you know, when I move on in a year, and I ended up really loving it. I, I just loved, you know, I was literally a year older than the guys I was coaching, but I just loved um, like the ability to teach guys and, and see that light bulb go off when they got it. And, and I was hooked. And so even though I went on to, um, you know, I went to Eastern Connecticut State for my last couple of years, in the back of my mind, I started thinking, all right, like, can I, can I do this? Like, can I be a coach? And, um, I, I had also been a, a sociology major, so I enjoyed working with people. I enjoyed getting to understand people better. And my after I finished my playing career at Eastern Connecticut, um, there were some different opportunities I had with basketball. And one of them was coaching. My, my head coach at Eastern asked me to stay on as an assistant. And, um, you know, I, 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 just, I, I just jumped at that. And, and I did, a, after that first year, of um, being an assistant at Eastern Connecticut, I knew like, this is this is something, I gotta find a way where I can do this for a living. Um, but I didn't always like, I've, I've coached players who like, who come to college knowing they wanna be a college coach and who have known they've wanted to be a college or a high school coach for years. That wasn't the case for me. I kinda, I knew I wanted to work with people and I really enjoyed um, connecting, but I didn't know if it was gonna, what it was gonna be, you know, what was going to be my bridge? Was it going to be social work and as a social worker or a counselor? And when I found basketball, it kind of allowed me to marry the two things that have been, that I really love in my life. And that is the game of basketball and connecting and trying to support and help people. I love it. That's a great story. So now you've been a head coach for over two decades and all at the division three level. What is, what makes division three such a special place in your heart? that you've continued to um, coach at this level? And because I'm sure it's been offered or you've had opportunities to move up a level, maybe at an assistant level, but you've stayed at Division Three the whole time. What What is it about Division Three? Well, I think, you know, I, I have had some offers over the years um, for the levels above us, D2 and D1. Um, especially when we really had things cooking at Elms. Um, you know, I, I just, I love, I love that you can be a whole person at this level. Um, I've had the great fortune of interacting with a lot of student athletes that have been scholarship student athletes too, um, through, ver through various ways, through summer camps, through connecting with them because they're trying to get into the coaching business. And a lot of them talk about how they felt like, um, they were more, um, player versus person. And the player kind of trumped uh, trumped person, and I think the D three level, although it's very competitive, right? We know that, you know that as a student athlete. Mm -hmm. I think um, it allows student athletes 
to kind of um, at a very important time in, in their lives to kind of really have um, be able to play their passion of basketball, be able to participate in all the things that go along with being a part of a program and a team, but also um, have the opportunity to kind of explore other things that you're supposed to get from college. Like we always tell our guys, so we have an acronym that guides our program, PACT, P-A-C-T. And PACT stands for Passion, Accountability, Commitment, and Trust. You can ask your guy, Ray, about, um, Ray Evans, about um, about PACT. You know, he, he, he has it imbrued in, 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 in him. But the P in PACT, Passion, we always talk about that um, we want our program to, one, be an opportunity for you to live your passion of playing basketball, but then also that college itself is an opportunity to find new passions. Um, because we think passion is what makes life worth living. You know, you could have a really busy schedule, but you know you've got like a game against your rival, and it's like everything you got to go through throughout the whole day. Whether it's you know you got you got um, assignments or tests that you got to you know prepare for or presentations or whatever you got going on, there's something inside you that's just so hyped up because you know you got you know you know you got a big game to play, and and so I think at the Division three level. You can kind of have it all. Like you can still play um, competitive um, intercollegiate sports, and you can still really dive into whatever your academic um, um, dreams are and aspirations are. But you can also like be that person that I talked about, and not just be the player. And I think, you know, a lot of people say it. I mean, it, for a lot of student athletes, especially at the Division One level. Um, and this is the feedback that I get from student athletes. It feels like a job and often it, it becomes one. So that's the biggest attraction um, for me is just being a part of that kind of an environment. I think we can have a little bit more impact um, on our student athletes, um, um, you know, because of that. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, the Division One and Division Two level, it's great. You get a scholarship, you're going to school for free, you know, you're you're living life, but sometimes it's not all, the grass isn't always greener. You know, you go to a division three school, you actually find yourself, what you're passionate about, that that PN pact is, is probably, I agree with you, one of the most important things in life to, to live happily. So going to division three school, it's not always viewed as um, luxurious in quotes, but it definitely can, can change your life for the better. Yeah, and I'll, I would I would counter this. When you go D1 or D2, and if you're getting a scholarly, that's beautiful. Like, you know, if you can get out of college without any kind of debt or anything like that, that's beautiful. But it ain't free. I mean, your time is probably the most, we, we always say time is the most, um, most important or most valuable resource that we have because we just don't have an infinite amount of it. No matter how much money we have, you know, we can't buy more time in most scenarios um, especially when it comes to our lives. So you're putting in a lot of time when you're um, when you're at that level. Like unless you really know people who are who are at that that high level, especially of Division One, but Division Twos, you know, they take a lot of time as well. Um, you know, you don't really know. Like it, it really is very consuming and can really pull away from some of those other areas. But I think you hit at something else too about Division Three or Division Two or Division One and NAIA or any of the other divisions that they have. And that is, is really kind of finding the place that you think just fits the right way. Obviously money is a concern. If you can find a place where you can still play the sport that you love and do some of the other things um, that are important to you, then you're, you're in the right place. And if that's D3, then that's a beautiful thing, you know, and you know, it's competitive at this level, like this, this is dudes at this level who can hoop and are definitely scholarship level players. Yeah, you know? like they, there's not a game that I'm playing where I'm not saying there's a dude on the other side of the court that's dead nice. There's not one game. So, yeah. yeah. Have you seen a increase, decrease, or neutral um, change in talent since you've played and you've seen a lot of players come in and out have you seen a difference in talent level? I think kids, I, you know, some coaches may disagree with me. I definitely think kids are more talented. I think players are coming in more talented. Every year that goes by, let's just think, since I've come to the University of New England, I'm coming in on my 12th year here now, right? 
in the in the in the 10 to 12 years I've been here, the amount of opportunities to kind of work on your game via trainers and and you know grassroots and showcase. I mean, that that is just it's exploded just in the last 10 to 12 years. You know, since I was growing up, I was just having this conversation. We have a coaching intern this year um, who's a junior at our at our university. And I was chatting, he was asking me about like how I got better when I was a player. And I was like, I just went to the park and played. I played one-on-one, I played two-on-two, I played three-on-three. You know, we had like drills and stuff that sometimes we would do like two-ball handling and all that. And But we didn't really have like people to really kind of like break down your footwork and break, like you just, you kind of, you kind of developed your, you know, your bag, as they say, just by playing and figuring it out, whatever worked for you based on the parks that you played at or the, you know, then eventually when you went to high school and, and if you grew or if you didn't grow. So I think players are more talented. Um, I think they just keep getting more talented. And I also think they keep getting bigger, faster, stronger. You know, like when I look at, the stuff that we did to get prepared for a season when I was in college to what we do now and like what my student athletes have access to. I'm like, dang, if I, if I had this, I was a pretty good athlete. I would have been running way faster. I would have been jumping way higher. I would have been eating much better because now all the knowledge around nutrition is even better. I mean, I, it, it's just a different, it's just a whole different vibe. So I think that players are definitely more talented. And I think players are more talented, um, you know, at all the levels, you know, at all the levels. Yeah. Do you think you have to change your coaching philosophy or how you are training these players due to this talent increase? Or have you tried to stay stagnant with your your philosophy and principles? Let me tell you something, man. You, I, I years ago, I had an athletic director at Eastern Connecticut State. And this is when I knew I wanted to coach. And I, I set up a meeting with her and I, I, I said, you know, as, a, as an administrator, because my head coach, you know, would give me some information, but I went to the AD and I said, look, can you drop, because she was a former coach too. I said, can you drop some jewels on me? Drop something on me right now. And she said, the number one thing I could tell you is stay a student of the game. Stay a student of the game. And that has really stuck with me. Like you, you, if you, if you are doing, there are some things that I was doing 23 years ago that I'll still do yeah. and things and, and perspectives that I have, because there are some core values that I have and some core kind of things that, that, that will always stay with me. But I think you just have to constantly try to be as innovative as you can, as adaptive as you can. Um, you know, I think if I look when I first started as a head coach 23 years ago, you know, like the, the the internet was was just was like kind of relatively new in terms of the exposure that everybody had an opportunity to it. And then in that course at that time, like we 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 had smartphones and we had social media and we had all of that stuff. So like everything has changed in so many ways from from recruiting to um to to you know player relationships and how you communicate with players, how you connect with them um like all of that stuff so i just think you have to consistently try to i always i always tell my assistants and and myself and anybody that i connect with like you have to constantly be in this um like self-reflection self-critique i call it interrogating myself um almost on a daily basis interrogating the decisions that i make um interrogating you know like what is the framework of our program and, 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 and also, like, look, while I'm interrogating, say, does it align with the goals that we have as a program? And, and I don't just mean, like, win-loss goals. I mean, like, end-game goals. Like, what, you know, we have three goals in our program that are the most important that trump everything. And that's the first one is have fun. The second one is build lifelong relationships. And the third one is have transformative life experiences. So those are our three top goals. We want every player to get out and say, you know what? It wasn't always sweet, but I had fun. We want them to say, you know what? I built some brothers and, and some deep relationships in my time um, when, as a college athlete. And I also want them to say, I learned some things about myself and about others that I'm going to use throughout the course of my life. So when we're interrogating what we do, 
we got to say, okay, is, is what we're doing aligning with what our goals are and then also aligning with our core philosophy of PAC, passion, accountability, commitment, and trust. So like all of that stuff's got to align and that's going to require us to maybe make some changes and innovate in certain ways. I love it. I'm, I'm stealing a few things from your program. I definitely am. <laughs> Take whatever you want. Cause I, I didn't stole a lot of stuff from other people. That's, that's what coaches do, right? Yeah. Let's get into a little more of specifics of your coaching career. Your first job was at Elms college and you inherited a two and 21 team. What was your mindset going into that? It would have been easy for you to say, I'm just going to take another assistant job at a high level school that's doing good. But you were like, I'm going to take a bet on myself. And I want to hear about what your thoughts were taking that job. Yeah, um, I just wanted to be a head coach. You know, I'll tell you, I I, I, I took a, I bet on myself in a lot of ways because I took a $23,000 pay cut to take that job. I had a pretty good job at the University of Connecticut working with the Upward Bound program at the time. And I had worked my way up. And the Elms job did not pay much at all. But um, fortunately, I, I had uh, my wife was amazing and was like, like, let's do it. You know, at the time, we didn't have any kids or whatever. She was like, this is your dream. Like, let's go. I'm with you. Um, but, you know, I, I just wanted to be a head coach. I wanted to, you know, I hadn't been an assistant very long. You know, like I said, I was only 27, so I've been an assistant for like four years and then the one year at JUCO. But um, I, I I just wanted to lead my own program. I wanted to see if I could have impact by creating, you know, kind of being a part of the, the creation of the foundation of a program. And honestly, Elms was the one 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 I, I applied to a ton of jobs and Elms was the one place that actually called me. I mean, they called me like I think it was like in in like August. I had forgotten I applied, to be honest with you. And um, they called me up one day and were like, we'd love to have an interview. And I, I had to look up where they were again. I had totally forgotten. And then um, I went on campus and interviewed and literally I interviewed on a Friday and I was getting married. She wasn't my wife at the time. I was getting married on that Saturday. Wow. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that was happening. And then, you know, a couple of weeks after I got the job, I literally like a couple of days after it, I accepted it. 9-11 happened. Um, and that, you know, that kind of was a, was a, a somber start um, to it. But I just wanted to be a head coach, man. Like, and, and I thought like I could bring some things to the program that could potentially help get it, um, you know, raise it to a level that they wanted to. I remember in my interview, I was like, we were chatting a little bit and they were like, well, you know, the program had, had just, the school had gone co-ed three years prior to that. And um, I think some of the people in the in the room were like, you know, well, you know, it's going to take a long time and this program, you know, kind of a little bit of a not a negative vibe because they wanted the program to be great. But they were they were they were, they were giving me a dose of like reality. And I was like, don't hire me if you don't think this program can be great. And um, I know I got a couple of eye rolls, but I was 27. What did I know? So I really just wanted to be a head coach and and get a chance to mentor young folks and, and try to like, you know, create something special. Yeah. So at Elms, you were there for over a decade and you won seven consecutive league titles. That's a crazy statement. But how tough of a decision was it to leave somewhere where they gave you your first opportunity? You've been there for a long time. What were the emotions and how tough a decision was it? That was one of the toughest decisions I have ever had to make in my life. I think um, Elms was, El first of all, Elms gave me a shot. I had had other job opportunities during that um, 11 years. And there was one that made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And had it not been for the birth of my twins, I might've left a little bit earlier, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, that wasn't, that wasn't what the universe wanted at that time. Um, Cause we didn't want to move from where we lived, having the twins and being away from family that could support us. Um, Cause we were due to have the twins during, during the season time. But um, it was, it was so hard, you know, like, I, I, I like one of the big tenants of our program, one of the big um, 
culture pieces is love. We talk about love all the time. When I started doing this at Elms, we do it here at UNE. We talk about love and we talk about like why we love each other and, and, and why love is important. Why is it important for men to kind of embrace um, um, communicating, you know, love to one another. And I loved those guys. I think they loved me. Um, when I had to make, when I had to call them all in together and tell them like, look, an opportunity came along and I think it's, it's, it's the best thing for my family. Um, they were brokenhearted. I was emotional. Um, it really hurt. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a hall of fame, um, um, induction ceremony at Elms for one of my former players. And another one of my former players said, you know, coach, I was really, um, I was really upset when you left because like it was my chance to be a part of the program when it was going to shine. He was a younger, he was an underclassman and he was finally rising up to like that junior level. It was going to be his chance to shine. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what, now that I'm a man and I have, a, I have a child and all of that stuff, I respect you. And I knew you always loved us and you always had my back and I've always stayed in touch with him, but he was like, I, I was angry with you for a while because of that. But now having the, the wisdom of time and, and experience under my belt, I realized why you did what you did. And I realized how hard it was for you when you were sitting there with tears in your eyes, telling, you know, answering questions from guys. And some of the guys were giving it to me, you know, like they were, they were basically like letting me know how they felt. And, and it wasn't positive stuff. You know, a couple of guys showed me love, but a couple of other guys were real, real upset. So that was, that was just, I'm, 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 I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it right now, just getting back to that time. Cause it was, it was a really tough, tough decision, but um, I don't regret it. You know, I think, I think I had to do that. I think it was good for Elms for me to do that. And it was good for me and my family um, to make that decision. Yeah. That sounds crazy. I respect you for that decision as well. Got to, got to do what's best for the fam. Right. But let's take a quick break. All right, we're back. We talked a lot about your success at Elms College previously, and you've been leading UNE for, again, over a decade, and you've led the program to six out of 11 postseason tournaments. What does UNE have to do to be on top of that, pro, or that conference, the CCC? Yeah, I mean, well, it's a tough conference. Um, there's some really good teams, um, some really talented teams. When I first came into the conference to right now, the level of talent, I mean, it's not even close. I mean, we, we you know, we have, obviously, um, there's different um, philosophies in recruiting and um, with COVID and all of that stuff. Um, and some of the changes in NCAA rules, there's, there's teams that have been able to really do well in, in, the, in the transfer portal and, and getting, you know, some some junior college or some four-year school transfers. So you're getting older, bigger, stronger, more experienced guys. And the COVID year allowed some guys to have an extra year. And um, so it's, a, it's, it's just, it's a really tough conference. I think, you know, it's interesting. Just before COVID hit in the 1920 season, we had a pretty solid season. It was, I think we were 13 and 12. We were 13 and nine with three games left. We were right in the playoff mix and unfortunately lost our last three games. And on the last day, had we won, we would have um, we'd have been in fourth place and would have hosted a playoff game. We lost and we were tied for eighth and 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 lost the tiebreaker. So that was how mm. close it was that year. And we had a really good nucleus of younger players. And then COVID hit and we lost some of those guys um, because COVID and they went back home. They were from out of region and. We lost some recruits because of the uncertainty of the year before. And I'll be honest with you, it, it's derailed, it's derailed us. And, and that's on me on um, the last couple of years. Um, I love the kids that we've had, um, but um, we haven't had the depth of talent um, to weather um, the storms that happened during seasons either. You know, last year was a really tough year, um, especially the first two thirds, we had so much illness an injury. We had, we had a, a bout with um, a number of guys getting pneumonia and some guys have a guy having to be hospitalized for it and other guys out for long periods of time and then having to clear that out of their lungs and still trying to compete. And, but I think it's, uh, it's just, you know, to have success at the college level, first and foremost, it's, it's about identifying guys that have some talent and then being able to get that talent 
to kind of play together um, and believe in each other. And that's what we've continually worked on. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of where our focus is, is trying to get the best talent that fits, um, that works for our program, that, 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 um, that meets some of that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we focus on uh, where we need to get better as a program. And if we can bring in guys that help us get better in those areas, at the same time, while our, our, um, our in-season and off-season player development is also focused on trying to get individual players better in those areas of development. Yeah, I got you. What are you focusing on specifically with this year's team? And are you in a rebuild? Are you trying to win now? Talk to me about this year's squad. Well, I mean, everybody wants to win now. I think I think we, we're still young. You know, we had a real young team, inexperienced team last year. We're still relatively young and inexperienced um, without a senior um, on the roster. Um, yeah, and we've really we've really tried to focus on last year. We had a tough time scoring the ball, um, to be honest with you. And um, so we've, we've, we've had guys try to really work well with recruitment and then also with guys off-season development, really focus on getting them better with, with their shooting, getting them better with finishing versus contact and confidence finishing versus contact. And then, you know, tactically, um, just trying to continually develop their basketball IQ because we play more principle-based versus kind of like um, um, running a lot of set plays or continuity offenses. So we're going to play more motion-based and we have some different um, motion principles that we operate from. And so getting our guys to better understand those motion principles and understand how to create and use space, uh, I would say a big chunk of our effort has obviously been on just trying to grow ourselves um, as far as offensive players and as a team offensively. And then obviously, you know, you're putting in your reps to try to get better on defense too. But I think a big part of our issues last year is I think if you're, if you're consistently not set on defense, then it's hard to be a good defensive team. So how does that relate to offense? Well, if you, if you don't score the ball, you're going to consistently be in transition unless the team walks the ball up the floor. And we, we got a lot of great looks. I think the players and the, and all the coaches felt pretty good about a lot of the looks we got. We just didn't, we, we struggled to convert them for, for a number of reasons. And we were consistently in transition defense. And I don't care how much you work in transition defense. If you're always in transition defense, you know, teams, team, it's going to be easier for other teams to score. So we feel like our like offensive success will be connected to our also defensive um, success. But that's been the primary focus, real, to be honest with you, from the offseason, even in recruitment a little bit um, up to now. Yeah, you mentioned that you got no seniors on the roster. And high school kids coming in, they're not expected to maybe have a leadership role. How are you trying to instill in some young younger kids or – fresh juniors, underclassmen that they might need to take that leadership role? Yeah, so we, we, we currently have two identified captains. It, it's, it's, it's funny you ask that question, like literally this morning. So I think I share with you, we practice early mornings. So we go six to eight in the morning. And uh, literally this morning, we were talking about the fact that everybody is a leader in the program. Um, we have two identified leaders, and I think it, it is helpful to I have identified leaders that people can go to, that that can become a bridge between the the the, the team and the coaching staff. Um, but everybody has to assume some sort of a leadership role. We talk to our players about that, and it looks different for everybody, you know, based on their personalities, based on their experiences. We'll obviously do things with them to kind of help them. Um, um, basically build their bag or fill their bag as a leader, um, you know, whether it's, you know, articles we share or conversations we have or videos or, or whatnot. Um, but, you know, we like to communicate the guys that you can, you all have an opportunity to be a leader. And what we really try to do, to be honest with you, um, KJ, is that we don't just want to say like, okay, you all can be leaders. Like, what does that really mean? But we try to give very tangible examples of how you can be a leader um, as a player, even if you are not an identified leader. 
even if you're not a captain or you're not a senior, but as a freshman, you know, if you could, you have a big part of locker room culture and what goes on in the locker room, you have a big part of how we interact with our, our, um, our athletic training and our strength and conditioning staff and all of that. And if anybody's kind of not towing the line that they need to tow, you have a big part of when you, you know, as a um, citizen on campus or a citizen off campus, like when you're in spaces with teammates, you can lead. You can also kind of be take a little bit of initiative. Um, and this is one of the things we were talking about this morning with the guys. And you could come to the coaching staff or come to your um, your your captains and say, hey, you know, here's something we tried in high school or here's something that we tried at my prep school. Um, I wonder if we could explore, you know, maybe doing this or doing that, like bringing in new ideas. There's different ways in which people can lead. Um, and I think most people get locked into a stereotypical definition of what a leader is. And that's like this charismatic, gregarious person who's just always talking and takes over the place. And, you know, I, I think leaders come in all different shapes and sizes and everybody has the potential to lead in some form or some way. And everybody has, I don't think leadership is something that people are born with. I think I always, you hear the saying, um, uh, he's a born leader or she's a born leader i don't i don't believe that i don't think i don't think leadership is 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 something that's natural i think leadership is something and maybe i should trademark this but it's something that's nurtural i think that you you develop your leadership skills and your leadership lens through your life experiences and they could be shaped in all different ways and like you don't necessarily have to come up in an environment where you went through a lot of adversity to be a great leader in terms of like stereotypical adversity. Maybe you grew up poor or you grew up with some with some people passing in your family when you were really young or some trauma like that. I think environments are what create it. Maybe just your environment at home and you had, you know, you had parents at home or, or, or guardians at home that really created an environment that forced you to kind of be independent and kind of be a creative thinker and all of those things. And so when, by saying all that, I mean to say that leadership then is a skill that everybody can be a leader and it's a matter of acquiring the skills in order to be a leader. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've never thought about that, but that is a fact. Like everybody can be a leader. It's not one way or another that like, like you said, there's not one specific definition of what a leader is. It's about the environment and who's telling you that this is how you can be a leader and this is how you're not a leader. So kudos to you and your coaching staff because a lot of programs, you know, they're not allowing their freshmen to just be like, oh, this is what I did at my high school because they're like, this is my program. I'm going to do it how I want to. But you taking advice from someone fresh into college, that that's a lot of respect. It's Well, listen, this will be the, the, the thing I'll say about this and, and we could certainly move on to your other questions. But I always tell our players, like the, the program is theirs. It really is. Like I'm like the face of the program and any wins and any losses, I carry them. You know, I carry them with me for, my, for the rest of my life. But the program is really theirs. And, and, and like, I'm going to have to make some decisions because I'm, I'm steering the ship a lot of times, but they're really helping the ship go. Like they're really rowing the ship and they do have some say in terms of the direction of the ship. And I, I think if you can get like a collective buy-in uh, from players and, and they, like most people, in my opinion, want to have a voice. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be respected. They want to be appreciated. And I think one of the ways in which they feel heard, seen, respected, appreciated is, um, is, um, is by having some say. And again, there's sometimes I've got to make decisions that I, I just know in my experience are, are, are the best for us. But in general, I want to get feedback from all of our players. And I don't want anybody who's a freshman all the way through senior to just be along for the ride. If, if, if you know, I want, I want them to be engaged enough to feel like, okay, I can have impact here and I can have impact here and I can have impact there. Yeah, that's a great response. I love it again. I want to transition into slightly different topic. I was doing a little research about you, your programs and things of that nature. And I came across that you were the 
interim associate provost for community equity and diversity. So how do you instill that into your program, that diversity, equity, stuff like that? You know, KJ, I really appreciate you doing your homework and, and bringing that up um, about my experiences. I mean, I, I bring the lens of, of equity and inclusion to everything I do. Like diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and belonging, like that's not like um that's not like just a training or that's not like uh just a you know a special event or a or a month out of the year or whatever. Like that's literally the lens at which I view uh, everything that I do. And so when I'm running my basketball program, I'm always trying to say one because equity is really about a couple of things. It's about fairness, it's about access, it's about social justice. Are we running a program that is accessible for lots of different folks? Um, are we running a program that is, um, that is fair, one that respects um, the dignity and the humanity of individuals? Um, and then we also look at like inclusion and inclusion is, is like, how do people like, um, do they feel like they're heard, seen, respected, like they can be their, their true self in the environment, right? So that's the lens that I take with everything that I do. Now, how does that play out with our, with our guys and how do we get them? How do we get our, our players to also um, embrace that kind of a lens where they appreciate diversity? Remember, by the way, diversity is more than just race or ethnicity or religion or sexual orientation. Diversity literally means difference in all dimensions. So there could be geographical di diversity on a team. There could be nation, uh, na nation of origin diversity on a team. There could be socioeconomic diversity. There could be you know, diversity of different experiences, players that have played AAU, players that haven't played AAU, players that have gone to public school, players that have gone to parochial or prep school. Like all of that gives them different experiences in addition to other elements of their identity like race, um, ethnicity, religion, so on and so forth. But we wanna get our players to kind of look through that lens. Um, and so, you know, we've done lots of things. Again, you know, I keep bringing them up. He's a great resource for you with regards to me, but, you know, Ray could share, you know, we've done workshops on stereotyping, on bias, on um, what is social privilege, on, I mean, there's just been a host creating um, psychologically safe places. So we do a lot of that stuff with our guys. And that's when I remember earlier when I was talking about like being a person over a player and how D3 can really allow you to develop as a complete person. These are the things that we're really talking about. We, I don't, I don't put my, my political ideologies out on the table and, and force guys to think one way or the other. Um, but we do say, hey, let's try to view things through a lens of fairness, through a lens of like we want to invite everybody and, and, and allow them to feel safe and welcomed in our program. And that's kind of how it surfaces, you know, especially in this climate where when you say DEI or DEIB or whatever the different acronyms are, it's a very politically charged kind of um, topic to, to discuss. We, we try to make it more safe and digestible and let guys understand like what it truly is and then how it can really help them be more successful in their life if they can develop this lens of seeing things this way. Yeah, another kudos to you and your coaching staff. Like a ton of programs or coaches don't want to mention any of those topics at all and just keep it strictly sports, keep it strictly grades. But to for you to empower, it's almost like empowering your players to have a space to learn not only learn but to be able to speak their mind and realize that their opinion matters and it's going to be treated as fairly so i respect all of that so kj you just made me think of something we there's um so i've done some different things on on this idea of inclusive leadership like how can leaders be inclusive and create really thriving inclusive environments and there's three levels that I've kind of come up with. I've, this framework I've created. The first level is explore. And explore is all about um, learning about other folks that are in your program, learning about other people. 
um, and then learning about yourself as well. Like you have to explore how you feel and think, like look at your own biases, look at your how you how stereotypes play out in your life and for you, and then learn about other people. You know, if I have a player from another country or I have a player from a different religious background than me or from, a, from another part of the country or whatever it is, it's, it's important for me and for us as, as leaders to try to um, learn more about them and how they operate. So that's the first level, explore. The second level is what you're talking about, empower. Empower is really important to creating inclusive environments. People need to feel like um, that, they, that they have a say. People need to feel like that they have an opportunity for growth and to develop. Um, and then that final level of um, inclusive leadership is what we call, is what I call embed. And that is, is, what are the norms and the policies and the way in which you're gonna allow people to one, explore and two, become empowered. So the embed part is like, is like, is like the structure that you create so that people can explore and also so that people can feel, become empowered, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I love that. I basically love everything you said this whole interview. But we're going to end this episode. I took in enough of your time with the little rapid fire and starting five edition. You ready for the rapid fire part? Yeah, give it. I'll do my best here. <laughs> All right. The first one I got to describe a little bit. But um, the guy we're talking about, his name is Ray Evans. Um, huge respect for coming from me. Like, Ray's my boy. Um, I grew up with him. He's a little older than me, but I've always been around Ray, and he's a great basketball player. He played at UNE with Coach Silva. So the first question is three words to describe Ray. Personable, um, athletic, and uh, competitive. Love it. Those definitely describe him well. All right. Favorite TV show? Oh, man, you've got me on. I, I mean, there's a lot that I love. I would say um, I, I, right now I, I've been I've been binging when I can. But sometimes I'm binging Criminal Minds, to be honest with you. I love Blackish, too. Cr Criminal Minds and Blackish are the two that I could watch over and over, to be honest with you. Respect. And then favorite celebrity. Oh, man. I mean, my favorite player of all time was Julius Irving. Um, so maybe I default I default to Julius Irving um, in terms of a celebrity. Um, I know he's not in the kind of the public eye the same way, but that was the first thing that no, came to mind. He's definitely a celebrity. Shout out Julius Irving. All right, this edition of the Starting Five is going to be players you've coached. It can be from Juco, can be from Elms. It can be from your previous assistant job or UNE. But basically, you're assembling a, if you were taking a pool of all the players you've coached, a, a starting five from that. Well, my number one pick would have to be um, we had a young man named Juan Maldonado. His nickname was Bags. He was a, like a 5'4", five, 5'5 five, five guard at Elms College. And... Um, he is the best two-way player I ever coached, defensively, offensively. He, his work ethic was second to none. He was a super communicative and caring and loving kid. He just, he would be my number one guy. Um, and I love all my guys, but when we're looking at, like, especially on the court, I coached another player at Eastern Connecticut State um, named Rich Vega, who was a, just a, he was a thin kind of combo, maybe two guard, Kid, he led us to an NCAA tournament uh, one year. I think he might have been a sophomore that year. Wow. Just could he? He kind of played a little like Rip Hamilton. He had a great little mid-range game. Even had the same frame, not the same height. So that would be my second. My third would be a guy who played for me here and played with Ray named Alex Krabchuk. Uh, Alex was like a five eleven. I don't even know what position. He was just a baller, and I don't think I've ever coached anybody more competitive than Alex Krabchuk. I mean, he is, like, if you had anything that you kept score on, like, Alex was trying to win it. He didn't care. And, you know, he he got buckets, too. He was a, a very um, unorthodox scorer. So that'd be my third guy. Now, we wouldn't be any big. They're all, like, you know, somewhere between, like, six feet and below, right, just right there. Um, 
My next guy I would pick would be a young man named uh, Juan Alvario who played for me at Elms. And he was like six foot five with like a six, eight wingspan and could play like everything from the one to the five. And he could shoot threes and he could post tremendous defensive player. And on my Elms teams, we really pressed and he was just tremendous at the front of the press. Um, and then my fifth guy is going to be a guy and I've had, I've had some, the fortune of coaching a lot of really good players. So this is a hard thing, believe it or not, but was a guy named Nate Hawes that played for me. Nate was from Minnesota and he came to Elms as a baseball player. And he asked me to try out for the team. He was about six foot five, maybe 185, 190 pounds. Pretty good athlete that I realized after the first couple of trials. But what made Nate special, beyond the fact that he was a decent athlete, was that he was the single greatest learner that I ever coached. Like the very first practice I had, I said, like, look, we, we ran like a, um, a numbered fast break. So we, we had like our center run the middle of the floor. I said, look, rim run every time we get the ball, whether we make it, whether it's a rebound or whatever, you run the, run the middle of the floor as hard as you can. And I think good things will happen. And I also said, I want you to chin every rebound that you get. And he just did it immediately from day one. And it paid off over so many years. He, he went to a couple, like two or three NCAA tournaments, helped lead us to two or three NCAA tournaments. Became, an I think, an all-conference player, if I remember correctly. And he was a baseball player who never really even played organized ball because he played hockey in Minnesota. So I think I would rock with that group. And I know I'm leaving out some some really, really good players. Um, if I, 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 I want to come up with a sixth man, and I know this isn't a part of it, but I got to do it. I had another kid. I had another player named Oswald Thomas who um, played for me at Elms. Oswald, uh, right now, he's currently like a national leader around um, gun violence and all of that. He's written a book. He's done some amazing things. But Oswald is what I would call, we used to call him lemons to lemonade. He could make broken plays come into something special. He's one of the best passers that I've ever coached. He led the country in steals. He had the quickest hands up until my freshman, my, my sophomore, now that I have Adrian Torres, he's the only guy that I've ever seen with hands like Oswald. But Oswald Thomas has got to be, I, that's my six. I got to roll it. I need a sub because I can't leave him out. <laughs> no, that, that sounds like you got you got a good squad. You might go back to the NCAAs with that one. I, I, would, I would love to give it a shot with that group. I think we would do some damage. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time for real, Coach Silva. It's been Another episode of Not Even D2. I'm going to be tuned in to all UNE games that I can watch and wishing you the best. Appreciate you, KJ. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I love it. Yes, sir. Have a good night.